This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. While you're here, please make sure to like and subscribe. If you're listening to this on podcast, please make sure to leave a review as this allows my content to get in front of more people. And thank you for that. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Mark Schatzker. We talk a lot about nutrition and、um, how it affects our brain and how even obesity might be a cause of the food that we're eating. There was so much psychology and information as to why even sweeteners or why we're eating certain foods that are a mismatch for our brain. And then our brain seeks out more food. It's so fascinating what he talks about in a lot of the studies. And I plan to totally look at those studies because it's truly fascinating. I hope you take the time to listen to this, especially if you are on a carnivore or keto or some type of your own diet journey and it's not fully working. Maybe you still have desires for certain foods that you know aren't best for you, but you're still craving it. There's something about the balance of the mind and body that's so important. And he talks a lot about the science about that. I highly recommend getting Mark's books as a lot of The nuances and a lot of the studies are mentioned a lot further in the books, as well as what to do and start healing from a lot of this mismatch of our brain, the foods, eating disorders, and even obesity. Mark is the author of three books Steak, The Dorito Effect, and The End of Craving. He was a former feature writer for Condé Nast Traveler. His work has been published in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Best American Travel Writing and Annual Review of Psychology. In Mark's recent book on the end of craving, he reveals how our dysfunctional relationship with food began and how science is leading us back to healthier living and eating. The truth is that for the last 50 years, we've been fighting this battle with food and the food corporations, and yet we're sicker than ever. Heart disease and type 2 diabetes is more prevalent than it's ever been. We went through a pandemic where type 2 diabetes and obesity and a lot of these metabolic syndromes. Were comorbidities that would tell if you would have an easy time or a hard time with this virus. It's time that we focus on our food 
and less on a lot of the other things that are causing us to possibly be sick. We want to band-aid with tests or with supplements or eating certain foods or the perfect foods. Maybe we just try to figure out what natural foods to eat on a consistent day-to-day basis and then do that for the long term. Mark talks a lot about how healing takes a while and it just will not happen overnight. This is a really powerful interview and I hope that it helps you to figure out what you should ideally be eating in a day. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've seen three of your books, and so I'm excited to dive into them with you. If you can introduce yourself to the people that are listening and watching. So my name is Mark Shasker. I'm an author, and I'm, I love food, and I'm obsessed with flavor, everything about how food tastes to, I guess, what it means about food and, and our health and our relationship to what we eat. Yes. And you, you're, you have three books and they're all a little different and they're all kind of connected as well. But the first book, um, it was this journey of you trying to find your perfect steak. Um, my community is a meat-based community. So, you know, from your, uh, your, I guess, journey, did you, did you find like a perfect steak? What, what is your favorite steak? It, yeah. So, I mean, this is where it all started. Um, my whole obsession, which has now become, you know, reached deeply into nutrition and even neuroscience, it started with an experience I had in, in Chile. I was visiting my brother and we went out to to the beach for the weekend and we bought a tenderloin from Argentina, um, you know, famous Argentine beef. And it was one of those, oh, my God, moments when I just put this morsel of grilled beef in my mouth and everything just went into slow motion um, and asked a simple question, which was, why does this steak taste so good? And had a very complicated answer, which led to a book. Um, and I guess the short answer is one of the things I learned on that that journey, I met with the great French chef, Alain Ducasse, and he said, well, there's no best, there are many bests. And I said, well, you know, that's true. But if you take all the best, there's one that's going to stand above the rest. But I since came to agree with him that there are many bests. Um, and over the course of writing that book, there were three steaks that were what I would call mind-blowing steaks. There was a Highland steak in Scotland. That's that big shaggy cow you might see. It almost looks like an overgrown sheep with horns, um, pointy horns. Um, they're they're known for being able to survive on very sparse Scottish rangeland. Um, you know the Hebrides, places like that where normal cattle would, would wouldn't survive. And that was a that was really a steak you really could cut with a fork. It was so tender, and it was just an absolute burst of flavor and joy inside your mouth. There was a steak in Argentina. Argentina has a reputation as being a kind of Shangri-La of great beef. And at one time it was, it no longer is. It's a very sad story about how industrialization has destroyed one of the true beautiful products of um, farming, which is great Argentine grass-fed beef. Now their best land is being used to grow mainly soybeans to send to China to feed pigs and so forth. But you still can get a great steak there. And I had an absolutely breathtaking steak at a steakhouse in Buenos Aires. And then um, also in Idaho, uh, Alder Spring Ranch. Is a ranch that does absolutely superb organic grass-fed beef. So you I guess the one common through line I keep mentioning is that word grass. And I'm very much a believer that the best steak comes from cattle that only eat grass. Some people have a different opinion. Uh, I will also say the worst steak I had was also from cattle that only eat grass. It's um, Grass-fed beef is like making wine. You really need to know so much about everything, not just about cattle, not just about soil, but grass, about the seasons everything and um when when it all lines up and and uh it's it's a life-changing experience as it was for me if someone does know what they're doing um it's it's an absolutely miserable awful product but it, yeah it, it's uh it, that's where things started for me what's interesting is so i i love supporting the local farmers and so we'll get grass-fed finished beef and like you said it's 
it's not as tasty as sometimes buying the meat from the grocery store. So do you know what specifically can make grass finished meat not as tasty? Maybe they're super lean and it has that minerally flavor versus the meats that you're sounding like doesn't even sound like they're grass fed. Yeah, so it it really has a lot to do with fat. Um, They talk about grass fed and grass finished. Well, the finishing refers to that stage in animal production where you're getting a layer of fat on them. And it's probably the most critical stage from a quality point of view. Although you have to be aware of of weight gain throughout the the, the life cycle. If if cattle are ever stressed and they're not gaining weight, that will lead to to tenderness problems. Grass can be very energy rich, but it can also be energy poor. Corn or barley or any grain is always going to be energy rich because it's an energy packed seed. Um, so if you're feeding cattle grain, it's it's uh, it's just a really easy way to get the energy into them. Now, there's an interesting test you can do, though, is, is just grab a clump of grass like out of your garden and put it in and just chew on it for a bit. Don't try and swallow it. It's too fibrous. But, and then spit it out and then get some feed corn, not the sweet corn that you buy in the store. If you ever get your hands on some feed corn, you can just like go to a farmer's field and rip off a you know, near corn, if no one's looking, it's just absolutely flavorless. Um, it's like wallpaper paste. Um, it's just energy. And so it's funny you talk about tastiness. Um, I find, you know, commodity beef, just regular grain fed beef to be pretty flavorless. Um, it, it needs a lot of help. That's why we have steak rubs, things like Montreal steak, spice, Cajun rub, all that sort of thing. Grass fed beef, it's almost always flavorful. The problem is the flavor can go in the wrong direction. So when it's lean, you get some of these off flavors. It can be kind of swampy. It can be too mineralized. Um, sometimes the omega-3s, those are good, but omega-3s, are it's a longer fat. It's uh, polyunsaturated. It's hot to trot. It wants to get oxidized. And when it oxidizes at a low temperature, you get rancid off flavors. So there's a whole lot of ways it can go way, way wrong. Um, and when it does, it's it's just not appetizing at all. When you do get cattle, good genetics, cattle that can thrive on grass and they're eating energy rich grass, they can be just as fatty, even fattier than USDA Prime. I can send you a photo of um, grass finished Wagyu beef from New Zealand that will blow your mind in terms of how insanely marbled it is. And that beef will have the most, the richest, deepest flavor of any beef I've ever had. It's because the feed itself is carrying so much flavor. The important thing to realize is that flavor comes from plants. These are volatile uh, aromatic compounds that are trapped in the fat. People say that fat is flavor, but that's wrong. Fat is not flavorful. And you can prove that by taking a sip of vegetable oil or a mouthful of lard. It's just, it's rich. It's mouth filling. It's slick. It adds a lot to the to the character of food, but it it doesn't have flavor. We sense fat with the trigeminal nerve. It's a feeling. It's not like saltiness or bitterness or sourness where it has a sensor. It's complicated. There is a fat sensor, but we don't really sense it with it. Um, But fat is a carrier of these flavor compounds. And those flavor compounds come in the diet. But what's really interesting about cattle is they have a rumen. So if you take something like an animal that's monogastric, has one stomach, like a pig, if you feed a pig apples or... or, um, something like that, you can, you can really start to detect those notes because there's sort of like a direct translation. The rumen's neat because you've got all these crazy microorganisms going on and they will start to do their thing on the flavor compounds. So um, cattle expresses, let's say, the flavor of the land it's on in its own way that you don't get a direct translation that the rumen puts its own spin on things. So um, you just get that rich, deep, beefy taste. That's so interesting. And I, I would hear that from people sometimes that they're grass fed or finished 
had a lot of marbling. And I mean, it's rare to see here. Maybe I haven't looked enough, but oftentimes it's so lean. It's a lot drier. And like you said, it's a lot more minerally. So I'll, I'll, um, I'll look out for that picture. And then if you send it, I'll add it to this video clip. Oh, absolutely. No, you can, it's, it's frustrating to me that there's so much lean grass fed beef because humans don't like lean, lean meat. It's really interesting when you look at um, hunter gatherers or, or even, you know, Lewis and Clark would talk about um, hunting when they were, they were doing their famous exploration of the United States and their native guides would kill, let's say a bison and they cut out the tongue and they just looked to see how much fat there was. And if there wasn't any fat, they just walk away. They just had no interest in eating it. We need to eat fat if we're going to eat protein. If we eat an extremely high protein diet, it actually becomes toxic. This happened to Arctic explorers. They would eat lean rabbits, these wild Arctic hares. And, you know, they, they thought it's like, what is all this free meat running around? How great is this? And But they would get protein poisoning. Um, they, they'd have to eat so much that they'd actually, it, it would ball their stomachs, balls, they'd get the awful breath, they'd get delirious. Um, and you can die from it. But what was so interesting is they had this pronounced craving for fat. So this, their body recognized the problem and said, you need to eat fat. And when you look at how, um, you know, Paleolithic people or, or, or um, we have the ar- um, archaeological record of Native Americans, how they would they would do things when they slaughtered bison, they would take the bones and they would boil them. They, they would they, they'd make like a vat out of, I think it was leather, and they put water in and then put hot stones from the fire to, and then put bones in to render the fat out. It would rise to the top and they'd cream that off because they knew how valuable the fat was that you can't just eat lean meat. So they would make a, a, a I guess, a, what you call it, not a dish, a food product called pemmican, which was uh, dried meat and fat and berries. And it was very nutrient rich. It was this, you know, they could survive on it all year, but they recognized the important role that fat played because we have a tough time just processing protein. Like we're not like a big cat. A big cat can eat lots and lots of protein and do just fine. No, I, I fully agree. When I work with my clients that are unwell, um, when they eat a carnivorous diet with a lot of fat, they do a lot better than when they're eating the lean protein. So I'm I'm fully right there with you. Well, and the, the reason I mentioned is you'll see a lot of people with a nutrition interest, let's say on Twitter, or whatever, you know, talking about how, you know, traditionally humans ate much leaner meat and they yes. look at wild animals, but they don't realize how picky we were, that there was parts of the carcass we left behind or that we, we, we'd um, add meat to, or fat to it or do something. That uh, our relationship, you know, we love to eat animals. There's no question about that. But our relationship with animals is different than a traditional carnivore. And I love that. Um, there, You're right. There's absolutely a community of people that believe that if you want to have or fine tune your um, your body, the way to do it is eat a lot of lean protein days and not really much carbs or not any fat. And um, I see the ramifications of that for the average person that then starts to have thyroid issues or hormonal issues. And they're hungry all the time. So they have to really start evoking all this willpower not to go back in the pantry and eat something else because they're still essentially scavenging for fat because they're eating all this chicken breast all day long. And it's just yeah. not ideal for long-term health. So I, No, and their body is telling them this isn't working out. Do something. <laughs> Agreed. And Agreed. it's miserable to be hungry all the time. It's just no way to be. So Yes, yes. In your second book, we talk about you talk about flavors and the Dorito effect. You talk about how flavors and you mentioned the story about goats but you mentioned how that was almost a survival mechanism but now it's being manufactured can you talk a little bit about that the story about the goats and it's it was so fascinating for me well it's you know this book was really the story about flavor and about how our food system has changed in terms of flavor it's just just before we even get into it it's so interesting to think about the fact that we are we have been conditioned to be total nutrition heads 
we talk about food and our body's relationship with it, like from the neck down. We talk about protein and fat and, and minerals and vitamins and, and being absorbed by the body. There's this whole really interesting experience that happens inside your your skull where your brain is and your mouth and your nose. And if you this is, you know, we experience taste and flavor and we never stop to think about why is it there? We almost think of the flavor of food as some sort of frivolous thing that that evolution gave us as dangerous. You know, people say if it tastes good, spit it out. Well, why does food have flavor? I mean, it's a really interesting question. If you think of your genome as your instruction manual to make you, the section on making your flavor sensing equipment, your nose and mouth, is the thickest, biggest chapter. So clearly this is very important. What's it doing there? Well, taste and flavor um, is how your brain, it's your brain's relationship with food. It's important to understand that when we evolved, it's obvious, but we need to remember we didn't read magazines. We, we didn't know what a calorie was. We didn't know what protein was. The only relationship with food we had was the way it tasted. And taste and flavor is nutritional information about food. And that is something we never talk about. Um, we almost think we're smarter than that. Um, and it's something we've been mucking around with. So the, the penny dropped for me when I, I met a, um, a professor at Utah State University named Fred Provenza. Um, who's a behavioral ecologist, and he would study um, animals' relationships with flavor. And, and he found that flavor really is the nutritional map, the nutritional guide to the to the environment around us. So I'll tell you about a, 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 one of the many experiments he did. It was with sheep, and he made them phosphorus deficient. Phosphorus is an essential mineral. Uh, like, like essential vitamins, if you don't get your phosphorus, you're going to die. And it, it, this, this uh, experiment is fascinating right from the very beginning. But first of all, he found when he started to make them deficient in phosphorus, he gave them a diet with no phosphorus, even before he could detect lowering levels of phosphorus in their blood, their behavior changed. They started to paw the dirt. They started to, they would try to drink the urine of, of um, sheep in the adjacent, um, you know, next to them who, who were on a regular diet because they realized they're missing something and they are trying to find it. So he would succeed in making them phosphorus deficient. So they're in this stage where their body's like, a, you know, things aren't right nutritionally. There's something lacking that's very important. And he would give them uh, two different feeds. One day they would get a maple flavored feed and the feed really didn't have much nutritionally going for it. It just tasted like maple, but he would put a tube down their stomach and he'd give them an infusion of phosphorus into their rumen, their stomach. So over time, their brain would develop this association. When I taste maple, I get phosphorus. Then on the alternate days, he'd give them a coconut flavored feed. And coconut would be paired with an infusion of water. And over time, they would learn. They wouldn't learn this in, in, like studying math or studying Shakespeare. This was an unconscious association their brains would make. Because when he would then take the feet away and reintroduce the phosphorus deficiency, the sheep would go searching for food that had the maple flavor. Their brain said, maple equals phosphorus. Maple improves my interior state of malaise and makes me healthy again. Now, you might be sitting there going, well, what are you talking about? Everybody loves maple. Maple syrup's delicious. We put on pancakes. Well, he flipped it with a different group where he paired phosphorus to coconut. And the opposite thing happened when they became phosphorus deficient. It was coconut that they sought out, not maple. So that shows you in a very neat, beautiful way how the brain uses flavor, what's called flavor feedback, to, to find the nutrients it needs in the world around us. Now, you can ask, okay, well, that's true of sheep, but are humans different. Well, um, you know, we can't do those kinds of exercises with humans, but there are some, some um, 
experiments that have been done. I talked about an experiment that was done in the 1930s. Uh, Dr. Clara Davis took a group of infants. Uh, I think they're starting at like 11 months old. And she gave them a what's called a, ch- uh, a choice diet. They could eat whatever they wanted. I think there was 33 different foods they could choose from. And it was just up to them. They, they weren't giving any utensils. And there was there was no direction given from an adult saying you should eat this, you shouldn't. Nothing was in any way promoted or unpromoted. And the question was, would these children do a good job of feeding themselves? And many of them came into the study, you know, where did you get these kids? Many of them were, were um, from widows and from um, homeless women and things like that. And some of them came into the study in a very bad state of health. And they did a superb job of nourishing themselves. They did an excellent job. And there was one infant that came in with rickets, which is the deficiency of vitamin D. And this uh, infant was given a glass of cod liver oil with meals. And everyone knows how absolutely horrendously disgusting cod liver oil is. Well, this child of his own volition drank the cod liver oil until the rickets went away and then never touched another drop. So that's pretty compelling evidence. Very interesting study. We could not repeat it today for for, um, ethical reasons. But we find looking at the historical record, you know, the, the deficiency of vitamin C called scurvy. If any of us remember when we studied it in high school, these British sailors would get scurvy. They always talked about the fact that their gums would swell. And their gums absolutely did swell in horrendous ways. They'd actually have to cut the gum, like trim it off. But the first, what we don't talk about is the first symptom of scurvy was a craving for fruits and vegetables. So this was the brain knowing what it needed. So, you know, the scientists of the day had all these bizarre theories that was caused by a miasma, which is an, an ill wind or fog or the wave action. They had no clue. But ordinary sailors knew exactly what they needed. They needed to eat fruits and vegetables. And there's an account of a British ship, the Centurion, washing up on Juan Fernandez Island. They just had terrible scurvy happening. They're dumping bodies over it, over the, you know, the side every day. And what do they do? They scampered ashore and they started eating wild moss and wild turnips, just pulling them out of the ground and shoving them in their mouth. And they talked about how wonderful they tasted. Well, I'm sure if you and I were to sit down and taste these today, I don't think we'd say they were wonderful. We'd probably want to cook them. But their body was in such a state of need that their brain understood this is exactly what I need. So we can see then that that flavor is this uh, nutritional guide to the world around us. And that's what we've been messing up. We've been um, breeding uh, the fruits and vegetables that we eat just for productivity. So they're losing flavor. Strawberries and tomatoes are the best examples. They're sumptuous and red looking, but they don't taste that way. It's also true of so much of the meat that we eat. Um, it's just become bland, which is why our recipes are calling it ever more for spices and MSG and all sorts of things that food companies do to make it more palatable. But on the flip side, we've been capturing these flavor compounds in nature and, and producing them in factories. And this started in the 1960s. And it's why I call the book The Dorito Effect, because the very first Dorito was just a salted tortilla chip and it bombed. And the complaint that consumers had, well, they said, well, it sounds Mexican. It doesn't taste Mexican. So Frito-Lay brought out a second version of the Dorito that was taco-flavored. Now, did it taste exactly like a taco? Nobody thought they were eating a taco, but it had that zing, had that depth, had that meaty, satisfying quality that turned a snack nobody wanted to eat into a snack literally people can't stop eating. And this is interesting because nutritionally it was the same, same amount of uh, fat, same amount of carbs, same amount of salt. It was this dusting of flavor chemicals that, that turned on the I want to eat this response in people. And I think that tells us a lot about the importance of flavor. And that anecdote, I think, also tells a lot about how much we're mucking around with it. And maybe we should start thinking about that. When I consider the the story of the sheep, which was fascinating, and then even the babies, and then with the Dorito, I guess the part that I'm struggling with is with the Dorito, they're adding additives, but those additives aren't nutritionally 
forced or focused. So then is it just the dopamine kick that we're at, we as humans are going after, because it's obviously not the nutritional profile that's making us want that Dorito versus those babies and the sheep were going after nutrients. Yes. So what I would say is going on there, they're, they're presenting flavor out of context. So if you think of something, a great example of tomato, if you look at the flavor of tomato, there's about 26 flavor compounds that make a tomato taste awesome. If those flavor compounds are there in the right quantity, we people bite into that tomato and say, that's oh, just a wonderful tomato. We've been beating the crap out of those flavor compounds with all the breeding we've been doing. But if you get a great heirloom tomato, that, that, that's got it going on. Well, it's interesting if you look at how a tomato makes those flavors. This was worked by um, two scientists, Harry Klee and Steve Goff. They found that if you look at how a tomato makes its flavor, all these flavors that we love are synthesized from essential nutrients, omega-3s, uh, carotenoids, so you can think of the flavor of tomato being a big sign that says, eat me, I'm delicious, and I'm good for you. Well, that works beautifully when tomatoes are tomatoes and they taste good. But what happens when you make a tomato flavor and you just take these flavor compounds, but you don't take the substrate that they're made from, and you put them into, let's say, a ketchup-flavored potato chip? Right. or, or um, Then all of a sudden, you're getting that zing that, oh, this tastes good, but it's it, you're not getting the nutrients. And that, I think, turns on this desire to eat But this also gets into what I got into in the next book, which is called The End of Craving, which really looks at how eating goes awry, because I think our problem with eating is more than just foods that um, fool us in the short term. I think what this does is over the long term, our brain realizes something's not right and it provokes a response. And that gets into how does the brain respond when it's not getting what it thinks it's getting. And that's I can elaborate on that. That's a, a big, deep story. But but I think really where the where the fire is when you're looking at, at obesity and why so many people eat too much food. Hey, guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Yeah, let, let's get into that in a second. I just wanted to also give um, some of my two cents also with this, sure, um, yes. the body wanting the nutrients. So in nutritional therapy school, we learned something called LNT. It's like lingual neural testing. And what the whole premise is, you put a supplement or an herbal, it was like a herbal supplement made out of food, you put it on your tongue, and there were certain nutrients in that supplement. And then we would touch certain hot spots in the person's body. It's kind of like muscle testing, it's not fully. But the biggest difference we would notice is, for me, maybe I needed support in my small intestine. And when I use nutrients that were supportive of the small intestine, that supplement to other people may taste disgusting. For me, there was like a slight sweet flavor. And it's again, made of different food products. And I saw that um, directly from that. And um, over time, then that was how we knew we are probably missing nutrients that support our small intestine. Because again, that supplement tasted well on my body. And then another example is I think where we can drive this point home is yes, we don't know when we're eating certain foods that there's a need for it in our bodies. But we also understand the opposite when we naturally have this mechanism when we smell something that's rotten, our stomach turns and we know let's not eat that right. So we still have a lot of our biofeedback. It's just we're not as aware of it. And I think your stories and the studies that you mentioned really bring it home to say that it is it's so important for us to understand our biofeedback because 
I mean, that's, that's one of the things I advocate for in our wellness space. A lot of people will listen to experts and say, who should I trust? And I often go back to, you should trust your own biofeedback, which is very hard to do in our present day. But I think it's such an important thing to do as we are trying to heal. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, I got an interesting story about that too, because I was invited to a, a meeting of scientists called the Society for the Study of Ingestive Behavior, really study the science of, of eating and from everything from the, the what go, happens in your stomach and your, and your intestines to, and the brain and the integration of all this. And I gave the talk and I talked about, you know, the Claire Davis study from the 30s and the sailors and the scurvy and Fred Provenza's work. And the scientist came up to me and he said, that was a great talk. I think you're wrong. Would you like to test it? So we spent about two years testing this. He's a scientist at the University of Bristol, an experimental psychologist named Jeff Brunstrom. And to Jeff's surprise, we found for the first time since Clara Davis's work in the 30s, evidence for nutritional wisdom in humans. Mm -hmm. um, what we did is we gave people, we let them look at pictures of pairings of vegetables. And we just said, which one you know, do you prefer? And what we found is that people were, were selecting pairings that um, were more, were, had, had greater breadth of micronutrients, so more vitamins, more minerals, and greater amounts. So even though people were just saying, oh, I'd rather have um, the, you know, these two and not these two, deep inside their brain, this knowledge was expressing itself. So yes, we, we haven't lost it, but we live in a world that's constantly trying to fool us because of the way ultra-processed foods present these, these nutritional cues out of context. So let's go back to the obesity thing. So in your new book, you talk about how and why we are obese. And it's a lot of, like you said, it's this, the information that's not correct, correct, that's being sent to the brain and what we're really feeling with, if you can kind of expand on that. Yeah. So, you know, if you look at the Dorito effect and you think of this idea of that a human is presented with Doritos or, or food that's like a Dorito, they're being over incentivized to eat something in the short term. And in the short term, like, absolutely, people are eating food they wouldn't normally eat. Another really good example would be soft drinks. They're all just soda water with sugar, right? They're all pretty much the same. People say sugary drinks. It's like, well, sugar is a big part of it, but the flavor is a huge part of it. Dr. Pepper tastes like Dr. Pepper because of the flavors. Coke tastes like Coke because of the flavors. And that, that plays a big role. But if you look at studies, you can give humans what they call a preload. You can give them a bunch of calories and they will compensate. They'll eat less at the next meal. So I thought, well, are we compensating in some way? And what's really interesting is when you get into the neuroscience of obesity, most people think that, that the problem with people with obesity is they're too indulgent, that they, they just enjoy eating too much. They just don't know when to say no. They lack moderation. Uh, unlike trim people like me who are, have the good sense to say no. And it's really not like that at all. Right. When we look at the pleasure of eating, we see that there's a stark difference is that the pleasure response in people with obesity is blunted. They're getting less pleasure, which is a real surprise. Right. Where do we see the difference? It's in the motivational response. It's when they see the milkshake, when they see the burger, when they smell the pizza. Someone whose trim says, that looks nice. I might like to have a bit of that. Whereas a person with obesity says, I've got to have that. I just, I, I, it just looks so good. I have to have that. So think about the world they're in. Food is constantly more enticing and less satisfying. So it's a real miserable state of affairs. So, but that changes the question we have to ask then is what would make a brain want to eat too much food? Now, this is important because we've been conditioned to think that we come out of the womb sort of pre-programmed to just stuff our faces. And I don't think that's true at all. We've only really been stuffing our faces since the late 70s, early 1980s. Before that, you know, you look at pictures from the, the beach in the 60s or 70s or 
people shopping or people at a rock concert. Everybody was trim. Everyone looks crazily skinny. Um, and they were eating meat and potatoes and, and uh, all these things. So what changed? And this is where I became very interested in the role of the sensory aspect of food. I talk in the book about a um, work by a professor named Dana Small at Yale. And this is a complex story, but I think it, it needs to be told. She asked what she thought, a simple but important question, which is, is it possible to create drinks that are just as rewarding, but have fewer calories? And it, can we do this? And is it a good thing? And everyone think, well, yeah, wouldn't it be great to have a drink that's, you know, delicious, but low calorie? So how do you test that? She did something really interesting. She used an artificial sweetener called sucralose to create five drinks. They all had a distinct um, flavor and color, but they were all equally sweet. They all tasted like they had about 75 calories worth of sugar. She then used a tasteless starch called maltodextrin. So this is this carries calories, but has no flavor. You can't really detect it uh, as it's in your mouth. And she gave each of these drinks a different calorie payload. One had zero, one had 37.5, one had 75, one had 112, and one had 150. So five drinks all equally sweet, all have different amount of calories. She gives these to her subjects. They take these drinks away. They drink them. Their brain, like in that Fred Provenza study, their brain learns. It does an association. What is this flavor giving me? So let's just scratch your head and say, well, what do we think the result will be? She invited them back to the lab and she scanned their brains as they drank them. What do we think off the top of our heads? What are people going to go for? Are they all going to say these drinks were all equally wonderful? because they all were equally sweet? Is it sweetness that the brain is after? Or were these brains, you know, hungry? And they say, no, no, it's that 150 calorie drink. I did the analysis, that's the drink I want. Well, the response she got was neither. It was the 75 calorie drink that really lit up the brain. With the other drinks, it was like nothing was happening. And this was just a massive head scratcher. She's going, what, what the hell is going on? This makes no sense. She did it again. It happened again. So now she says, okay, I gotta, I gotta see what's going on here at a metabolic level. So she, she takes these subjects and puts them in something called an indirect calorimeter. This is a device that measures the thermic effect of food. So when you consume calories and you start to process those calories, you generate heat. As it's kind of like how your car engine gets hot. And uh, one day a female subject comes in, she drinks that 75 calorie drink and there's this beautiful little plume of heat, just as the textbooks tell you there's gonna be. Everything's going great. A few days later, the same subject comes in, drinks the 150 calorie drink. Well, according to all the textbooks, according to everything we know about physiology and calories and the way calories are metabolized, there should have been a bigger plume of heat. There was nothing, nothing happened. It was like this woman drank a cupful of air. What is going on? And that's when Dana Small is struck by this realization. It's the number 75. The drink that got the brain response, the drink that was metabolized properly is the drink that tasted like it had 75 calories and it also had 75 calories. That drink was matched which is to say the sensory signal matched the nutritional payload. And this tells us something important. It tells us, one, that we are, you know, that this experience of taste and flavor isn't frivolous. It is actual information and that accuracy matters. When it's accurate, when taste predicts what the body is getting, it's metabolized properly. The brain learns. The brain learns what to expect. The brain's happy about it. When this is mismatched and the brain is fooled, it's like brain holds up his hands and says, wait, stop. I don't know what's going on. Don't metabolize this. And this is where things get disturbing because we know the, these this um, maltodextrin turns into sugar in the stomach. We know that's getting into the bloodstream. Where is it going? This opens up a whole bunch of questions. It turns out in you, you give these mismatched drinks to adolescents. They start to look pre-diabetic. I mean, 
it's really quite alarming. But then we can step back and ask an even deeper question. We see that um, taste is information. And in the short term, we see this leads to metabolic uh, metabolic derangement. But what does it do in the long term? Because this is really, when we talk about how our food has changed, and we all talk about ultra-processed foods. Well, what is it about ultra-processed foods? It's not the fact that they went through a factory. It's not the fact that they have packaging. There's something that changes ultra-processed food that makes it different from regular food or even just mildly processed food. And my contention is it's this change in the sensory signal. Because if you think of something like sweetness, throughout not even just human evolution, from, from the, the evolution of the sweet sensor itself, cockroaches have it, bacteria have it. It was a reliable signal. When something tasted sweet, it said, sugar calories are coming. When it tasted even sweeter, it said, more sugar calories are, are coming. And we'd respond, there's a release you know, of insulin and so forth. Well, now we have a situation where this information is not reliable. A signal that is 200 calories on a Monday could be zero calories on a Tuesday. It could be 50. It could be 300. So this creates a condition in the brain. There's a very simple word for it, uncertainty. But this is a very big word in the world of psychology, even in business, because it affects human behavior. Um, there's a, a more fancy word for it, which is reward prediction error. And this is essentially a situation where the brain predicts a reward and that reward does not arrive. Well, how does the brain respond to that? And there's a very robust body of psychological literature that says it responds with enhanced motivation. When the brain, when there's something the brain needs, and it gets a maybe, one day it gets it, the next day it doesn't get it, the brain goes, hmm, this isn't good. Because uncertainty whispers the prospect that you might not get what you need. And food and calories are really important. And if you don't get them, you're gonna die. So how does the brain respond? It responds with enhanced motivation. It says, I'm gonna work harder to get these calories because it's just chaos out there. I don't know if I'm gonna get them or not. So I'm gonna compensate by working harder to get them. And that way I'm gonna ensure that I'm going to I'm going to get what I need despite this chaos. And this is what we see in the brain scans. We see enhanced motivation. We see people want to eat more food than they need because they live in a chaotic food environment. And by the way, I use the example of artificial sweeteners and people say, "Oh, well I'm fine. I don't need any of those." Well, for one thing, those are now winding up in products you'd never expect. They're they're winding up in things like bagels and um uh they're winding up in things like ketchup People use stevia, which is plant-based, but it's a sweetener. It's a, it's a no-calorie sweetener. But there's also all sorts of other additives to food that confuse the calorie signal. There's a huge uh, group of additives called fat replacers. It, um, now, it's so interesting. The fat replacer industry has been very smart. They don't advertise themselves the way the artificial sweeteners do. They're, they just play it cool. They show up in the ingredient panel with, with words you'd never really expect is, is a fat replacer, things like... Um, milk protein or modified milk protein or carrageen and things like that. But fat replacers are, are similar to artificial sweeteners. They create this rich experience of fat in the mouth and they deliver just a dribbling of calories. Well, that's a great idea if you're kind of a, a mindless calorie craving caveman. But if it turns out your brain is smart and it's sensing what's in the mouth and it also senses what's in the stomach, this creates, again, a situation of uncertainty where the brain cannot rely on its senses. So it's just goading us into this hyper-motivated uh, desire for calories because the ultra-processed food environment is chaotic and the brain doesn't know what to expect. So we we've goaded ourselves into an enhanced desire for calories because we've been mucking around with these extremely important sensory signals. That all makes sense. Um, the part that 
I struggle with a little bit is, so I'll have friends, let's say they have always been on the thinner side, but they don't eat clean. So they eat uh, the very ultra highly processed foods. And then I'll have other clients or friends that are obese. And so they fit the narrative that you just brought up. It's completely, um, I think they really have a hard time saying no to certain foods. And it might be that heightened sensitivity to desiring nutrients. So what is it about the person? Is it genetic wiring that maybe the thinner person, although they're eating the same processed foods, maybe they're just not eating enough in terms of calories to be overweight. But what is it that makes the, I mean, there's a lot of people that eat ultra high processed foods and they're not overweight. Yes, that's a great question. Uh, and I think there's there's more than one answer. First of all, there's always a distribution. Um, we all have different genes and there's always going to be um, the same way some people are more prone to addiction, um, the same way some people are born with a gift for speaking languages and other people aren't. There's always going to be differences in how people respond to something in the environment. Um, but the other thing is, I think these things act in a very deep level in the brain. We talk about uncertainty. I think there's more than one kind of uncertainty. Um, there's uncertainty in your food. There's also uncertainty in your life. Um, so I, I got kids, they're teenagers. And I think a lot about teenagers because that's that's when a lot of um, when we start to bake in a lot of the things that are going to affect us in life. So let's let's think of a teenage girl um, and let's say. Her parents are being mindful and they think they're making a really good decision. They're buying things like low fat ice cream and um, artificial sweetened drinks. Well, now her, her sensory signals are, are kind of getting wonky. Well, that's one form of uncertainty. But let's say her parents also got divorced. Let's say she started a new school, new friend group. This is going to apply to a boy as well, uh, um, obviously. What we haven't done a good job of looking at is how these different forms of uncertainty might work together. We know, for example, that there's an association between poverty and excess body weight. And this is the exact same thing taking place. It's people live in uncertain food environment. When 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 people, you know, focus even in more on poverty, they find it's people who um who can't rely. There's greater uncertainty into their relying on there being another meal that are actually fatter. You think, well, that's crazy. Why would they be spending this money they don't have to eat too much food? It's because of this scarcity uncertainty response. So I think that's another reason that these changes we've brought about in food can also are also can be also be enhanced by things that are going on in people's lives that that can affect their the way their brain responds and the, the way their brain thinks about the future and kind of on a deep level their level of comfort or or fear about what the future holds and how they compensate for it how do we start reversing some of these trends that you know, if I've obviously, if I've been eating ultra highly processed foods, one way is to start eating more natural whole foods. Is that sufficient to start having the brain, I guess, get balanced back and not feeling that there's a sense of uncertainty? I think that's a great question. And the truth is, we don't know for sure, because um, we need to start studying that. I think so. But I don't think it's going to happen overnight. You know, if you think about somebody who's in a really bad relationship with food, it didn't happen in six months. It took many, many, many years. It's an uncomfortable thought to think, well, it might also take a long time to undo. I think the most important thing we can do is just stop this from happening in the first place. And we have to change the way we think about food. North Americans always get really excited about food technology. We always think like science is going to save us. I believe we evolved to eat food and we should eat real food. We may at some point become smart enough that we can design fake foods that, you know, don't screw up this relationship, but I don't think we're anywhere close to that right now. So I think the most important thing is to make sure this doesn't happen. And then I think to, to try and undo that would be by avoiding the things that cause it in the first place. But I, I, I don't think this is a, 
you know, you can fix it in two weeks or even six months situation. There's a thought in the carnivore community where there's a ca- camp of people that say, don't add salt. The reason you add salt is because you're trying to eat more than you actually need. What are your thoughts about just salting uh, meats? I mean, do you think that it bypasses our satiety cues? Does it not have an impact? Any thoughts? I think a lot about that because I'm someone who loves salt and I don't like the thought of eating meat without salt. Salt just so vastly improves the, the flavor of it to me. Uh, it seems to me that research shows that salt is a problem for people who have hypertension and high blood pressure, but for people that don't. The other thing is we really get into problem with salt, again, in ultra-processed foods. When people cook with salt at home, they tend not to over-consume. It's, like, it's just like a mind-boggling amount of salt in, in processed foods, far less. So, so what I actually see a lot of people doing is they're really holding back on salt at home and eating some insanely bland food as a result. And then they go and salt binge. They go to some crappy restaurant and then they go buy potato chips and cheesies because they really start to salt crave. And that's the only place they can get their salt fix. So I'm pro salt. I think, you know, use it on real food and, you know, cook real food. And I don't think you get into a problem with it. That's my take. Okay. No, it makes sense. I think that as humans, we definitely need salt. So I was just curious, but I do notice that people will say, okay, I, I'm done eating maybe eight ounces of meat if there was no salt. But when you add a little bit more salt, you can actually eat a little bit more. So I was just curious. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, in terms of you, you talk about disease in the book and you talk about, for example, pellagra and how our bodies just kind of make sense of disease in terms of illness for maybe nutrient deficiencies. Can you talk a little bit about that and how our bodies are, you know, our brains are pretty smart? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I, you know, I mentioned the reason I talk about pellagra is because that um, so about a, a little over 100 years ago, there were sort of twin epidemics of pellagra, one in the American South and one in Italy. And what is so interesting, pellagra is a deficiency of niacin or vitamin B3. Interesting for a bunch of reasons. One reason it's interesting is they had no clue what was talking about it. And it very much mirrors the obesity epidemic and that there was all these different schools of thought. Some people said it was caused by um, like bacteria. Some thought it was uh, mosquitoes. Some thought it was sandfly. Some people thought it was like spores that get into your bloodstream and burst into flame. I mean, bizarre theories. Uh, but everyone, everyone was sure they had it right and nobody had it right. And finally, they figured out a Joseph Goldberg, an epidemiologist, figured out it had to do with food. Uh, And this led to our understanding of vitamins and our understanding of nutrients, which really opened a massive door. What's so interesting is how North America responded and how Italy responded. North America responded the way you'd think a a, a sound, sane, intelligent society would respond. They started adding niacin to basic things like bread flour and pasta. And we just started putting it into our processed carbs, corn flour, rice. We call it uh, enrichment. It's also called fortification. It's enrichment if the government does it. It's fortification if a company does it. Uh, and it worked beautifully. Overnight, Pelagra was just gone, just wiped out finito. And then you look at Italy, and it just seems like they're stuck in the dark ages. They they didn't add niacin to their polenta, which is what caused so much of the Pelagra because there's so little niacin in corn and, and grits or polenta, which is what Italians cause it. They said things like uh, poor people should grow rabbits because rabbits are cheap. And, and they even said things like, oh, we should you know, bake breads in communal oven and, oh, if you've got pellagra, maybe you should have a glass of wine, which is, you're just like, what was wrong with these people? But it was actually good advice. They didn't know it at the time, but the wines back then were pretty unfiltered. They had lots of yeast and yeast has tons and tons of niacin. So what's so interesting is that the Italian approach also worked. <coughs> Excuse me. It wasn't quick, but Italy, Italy literally ate its way out of a nutritional deficiency. If you fast forward the clock a little more than a century, these two environments could not be more different. The American South graduated from one nutritional disaster to another. 
what was formerly the pellagra belt is now the obesity belt, also called the diabetes belt. You go to Northern Italy, which was at one time the home of pellagra, and it is a food lover's paradise. Um, you go to the city of Bologna, that's where we get the word Bologna or Bologna from. There it's called mortadella, that wonderfully fatty luncheon meat. Well, they had rules about how to make it for 300 years, and it's absolutely delectable and wonderful. And they insist if you're going to make it, you must make it this way. It's against the law to not do it the right way. Um, that's how much they care. But they have a repository uh, in their chamber of commerce about how to make certain um, dishes, like their famous um, ragula bolognese, that famous meat sauce they put on pasta. The food is, is just insanely delicious. You'd think if delicious food was really the problem, they'd be the fattest people out there. They're among the thinnest. The rate of obesity in Northern Italy is less than 9%. So they're eating all this wonderful food uh, and they're so trim. So this is a very roundabout way of getting your question. But um, their response was, it's so interesting. Our response in North America was that there's something wrong with food. So we need to put on our white lab coats and fix food by dumping stuff in it, chemicals and nutrients and stuff. And there's also something wrong with us. We're just idiots. We don't, we don't know what we're doing. So, you know, we, we need to enforce what we're going to eat. The Italians saw didn't see food as the cause of pellagra. They saw it as the cure. They said, these people are too poor. They can't afford to eat anything other than polenta, which is just like cornmeal and mush. They need to have access to real food. And the Italian approach, as kind of untechnological as it might sound, is the better approach. Italians have a much better relationship with food than we do. It's intuitive. They eat what they want. They eat what brings them joy. Their food nourishes them, and they're in a now. Are they perfect? It's not some kind of a Shangri-La, but they are in a much better state of health than we are. We are so much fatter than they are. We have so much more type two diabetes as a result, or people who are pre-diabetic. And I think there's a very important lesson there about the way the brain and the body responds to just eating real food, and that we might think it's silly when they have rules that say that you have to make mortadella this way, and that if you want to call a San Marzano tomato, it must be from San Marzano, and it must be this breed of tomato. But they know the importance of deliciousness in real food, and they create rules because they know how important it is. Not only does it give us joy when we eat, but it nourishes us properly. So I think I think it's a ringing endorsement of eating real food and taking joy in the pleasures of real food. Yeah, and I mean, it, it makes so much sense when we respect nature and the way food was intended. It, there just seems to be a correlation with health. Whereas I, I feel that just from my research with nutrition, a lot of times when there's a deficiency our governmental systems just starts fortifying everything into our food. So whether it was B1, B3, um, I, I feel that they do that with vitamin D in our, our milks. We add all this fortification of vitamins and, and so we band-aid it and it seems like it remedies it, but there's long-term downstream effects. I mean, diabetes type two used to be um, adult onset and now yeah, it's, they changed the name. Yes, because kids are getting it when it, or fatty liver used to be just from alcohol but kids are getting fatty liver from the fructose they're consuming. And it's, it's just so worrisome, but there's no big shifts in the dietary changes. Um, just in the last five years, a lot of the, the, I guess the non-sugar advocates were trying to lessen the amount of added sugar that was permitted because it then bleeds into our hospitals, our schools, our, um, um, our prison systems. And I think they um, asked for 10% added sugar but there was um, some back and forth and it ended up being 12 or 13% was the final decision. And it's just, there is no benefit in added sugar. There's not even nutrients in that. So it it's so perplexing when we are obviously such a sick country when we're so well-to-do. 
Yeah, it's it's so the, and and you talk about the downstream effects, and that's something I, I talk about in the book, where I think it really gets interesting. Um, is that especially the the ill effects of fortification, because we think vitamins are good. Vitamins are like the forest elves of the nutrition world. They're just perfect. They can do no wrong. Vitamins are just healthy. The more you eat, the better. Well, it's really interesting. Um, I got interested in this because I was interested in steak, right? And one of the things I heard this kind of lore about feedlots was that they're just eating corn and corn's nutritionally empty. So the cattle are just eating, munching, 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 because they're, they're trying to get what they can't get. But then I talked to an, a, a feedlot, not a, a cattle nutritionist, and he said, that's not true. They actually, these feedlot diets are, are very replete in certain micronutrients because they need those micronutrients to process the calories. That's when this something, this light bulb illuminated my brain. I thought, okay, so something's going on with the vitamins. So, so we talk about that we live in a, a world where um, it's just too many empty calories. If that were true, we'd all have pellagra or something like it. But the truth is we're eating all this added sugar, like, like soft drinks. Some kids drink six soft drinks a day. I mean, it's mind-blowing to me. But they must be getting the vitamins to process those calories from somewhere. And that's what makes enrichment and fortification worrisome. So I looked at um, pig diets in the 1950s because pigs are the most like us of all the animals that we raise. And it's really interesting. I think we should pay more attention to what industrial farming does because their mission is to get the critter big and fat as quick as possible. It's the opposite of what we want to have happen to us, right? But that's what they want. And pig farming changed. Back in the early 50s, pig farmers knew that if you want to get your pig big and fat, you feed it corn and soy. But you can't feed it only that because it'll start to put on weight and then it'll crater and the hair will fall out, it gets diarrhea and it'll die if that's all you feed it. They knew the pigs had to balance their diet. So they sent them out to pasture. They ate a lot of alfalfa, but they had added other stuff. They knew they needed the alfalfa to balance the diet. So all pigs back then were pastured pigs. I mean, what heaven, what a heavenly world. All the, all the pork was pastured pork. Well, the discovery of micronutrients changed pig farming forever because now you could keep that pig locked up in a tiny little pen, give it all the corn and soy it could eat, but now you could just dust in these B vitamins. And the growth just took off. Pigs were putting on weight faster than ever before. This is what changed farming. We talk about CAFOs and feedlots. None of this would have happened without the discovery of vitamins. And, and what we need to understand is that certain vitamins, B vitamins, and certain B vitamins in particular are necessary to metabolize calories. Those people who were, got pellagra, they were eating grits, pork fat, molasses, carbs, fat, and sugar. That's a super calorie-dense diet. They were starving because they weren't getting the vitamins to metabolize those calories. So what did farming discover? That you can feed critters processed carbs and dump in B vitamins, and they just put on the fat and growth rate goes crazy. What did we do to our food? We started dumping in B vitamins to process calories. We think it's good and wholesome because vitamins are always good. Companies love to do it because, you know, moms and dads look at that nutritional info and look at all the vitamins. Right. But we're presenting them in a context and um, in a ratio that you just don't see in nature. Um, we're basically feeding ourselves uh, food that looks an awful lot like we feed to feedlot uh, livestock. And the whole point of that is to get them big and fat quickly. So we do need to do a much better job of thinking in a deeper way about our relationship with food, the short-term and the long-term consequences. If we were to stick to just real whole foods, yet our... I guess soils are a little bit more depleted of nutrients. What are your thoughts about then taking higher quality supplements, even if you're just eating whole real foods, but let's say you took a test and it shows some deficiencies. I would say if you show a test, like if you do a blood test and a doctor says you're low in something, right. um, maybe you should first think about, you know, a food that could provide that. 
some people, for example, um, as they get older, they lose the ability to absorb vitamin B12, and it's just a problem. And um, But I think food is the place to look for to get something. It, it is true that we're losing micronutrient density, but people overstress that. They'll say something like, um, you know, a vegetable today is basically devoid of, of vitamins and minerals. That's not true because that vegetable is a living thing and it could not survive without those things. The, the reason the vegetable produces vitamins and has minerals is because it also needs them. So I think food is the place to start. Uh, and if if there's some evidence that there's still a problem, then, then maybe uh, consider a supplement. What but what I don't like is this idea of like, I just need to hammer vitamins because <laughs> vitamins are good. We were evolved to eat food. And I think food is where we should, is how we should nourish ourselves. Agreed. Agreed fully. What about um, elders that I'll have parents that are taking care of their elders and they say, my, my mother won't eat and she's in her 70s. She barely will eat anything. So they start trying to make bone broth, even milk, um, like protein shakes with a lot of nutrients. When people are under eating and th- they are not eating sufficient nutrients, do you think it makes sense then? I mean, what are your thoughts with those people? Well, so the, some of the things you mentioned, like bone broth and, and or smoothies, I mean, that, that stuff sounds you know good to me. You know, things can get messed up in the elderly um, as people get dementia, for example, the the nerve connection between the mouth and the brain can start to deteriorate. So they're not sensing food and they're losing their ability to enjoy it. So they can really be in a situation where they're losing the ability to nourish themselves. So maybe you need to step in there. Uh, although it's interesting, when I was researching the Dorito effect, they did a study where they were they were developing better tasting strawberries, strawberries that actually taste like strawberries, the University of Florida and they brought them to an um, like a facility where they were caring for elderly people with dementia. And it was all, they were all having these epiphanies when they ate these strawberries and remembering eating strawberries in their youth. So I think that's also telling us maybe better food. You know, a lot of these institutions, they don't serve very good food. Um, it's some of it's pretty appalling, actually. If people were to start saying, I'm going to try to change my relationship with food, I want to eat more real foods. What are your, I guess, some of the big tips that you recommend? For people to start healing? I think the approach I take is that you should approach eating like an Italian does. Um, I think the we approach in North America is that um, if you're going to eat healthy, it's going to be like some form of penance or doing community service. It's going to be bland. You're not going to enjoy it, but doggone, it's going to be good for you. I think the better approach is the Italian approach or the Japanese approach, um, where you, you approach the products of the land and the sea with a reverence. Mm-hmm. And you approach each meal as an, as an opportunity to experience joy the joy of nourishing your body and it, it you can have a wonderful relationship with food and and have and be healthy and i think that's the approach we should take well wow, thank you so much this has been an incredible um interview i loved a lot of it it impacts the carnivore community so much with a lot of the information you were sharing about nutrients and a lot of the questions we have even when we are not eating a rainbow of plants so i think this has been very helpful where can people find your books where can people find you so I'm I'm not hugely uh, active on social media, but I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram at Mark Schatzker. I'm on Facebook, and my books are available in bookstores and on Amazon. Um, Steak, One Man's Search for the World's Tastiest Piece of Beef, The Dorito Effect, um, and the most recent book, The End of Craving. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been um, this has been so thought provoking. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I had a great time, and uh, and I just want to say too, people have been having a bad experience with grass fed beef. Uh, get some well finished fatty grass-fed beef. You will love it. It's delicious. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Okay, guys. I hope that you enjoyed this interview with Mark. Make sure to check out his three books. They're very well-written and it's just so powerful. All the studies he shares 
to prove his case as to why the mind-body relations really matter when it comes to healing our desires for food, food addiction, obesity, and how we should just get back to eating natural foods. If you're looking for grass-finished meats that are fatty, uh, make sure to check out the notes as I'm curious too about these meats. Okay, guys, you know what to do. Make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.